0: Hola, and welcome to The Last Dance After Show. My name is David Villar, and I'm sure you would agree it couldn't fit more perfectly than to have a world party on the day he came to be. It's the Scotty Burrell of podcasting himself, Sam Fragoso. Sam, how the hell are you doing?
1: I love that so much until you referred to me as Scotty Burrell.
0: What? What? How how dare you? I I keep you on your toes.
1: I push you to your limits. I can't believe you had that pre-written and really stuck with the Scotty Burrell.
0: I, I, don't, I have no idea what you're talking about that was, you're, again... You're
1: clearly looking at a Google Doc file right now.
0: Not at all. I am <laughs> looking into my soul and coming up with the most apt description of you and this podcast. So, you're uh,
1: welcome. How you doing, man?
0: I'm doing well, yourself.
1: Well... I'm glad to be doing this podcast. I'm really excited that the COVID crisis is solved. Mm-hmm. Quarantine is done. Yeah. What, what? Can't wait for the summer. Oh, dude. Just get out
0: there on the beaches and, oh my God, what are you all doing? No, please don't.
1: Three more months at least here in Los Angeles. Uh, have you come to terms with it?
0: Uh, You know what? I've come to terms with it just because I see this rising case numbers and death numbers. So it's kind of easy to reconcile for me. I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not like thrilled about being quarantined, but at the same time too, it's also like, you know, it's not good and therefore we should be careful.
1: Yeah. In case you needed a reminder on a basketball podcast, Uh, please listen to the doctors and not our president.
0: Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, I think
1: think that's all we have to say politically.
0: uh, Well, we have a lot more to say than that, but you know what? For right now, let's just focus on this wonderful podcast that we've created. And let's focus on today's guests. Uh, We had a great filmmaker roundtable with the Ross brothers, both Bill and Turner, who directed such films as Western, Contemporary Color, and dare I say the toast of this year's Sundance Film Festival... Bloody Nose Empty Pockets. And we also had legendary filmmaker, producer, and documentarian, Steve James, who has given us The Interrupters. He executive produced Minding the Gap. And of course, he gave us the absolutely sensational documentary Hoop Dreams.
1: Goddamn. Yeah. That's a doc roundtable right there. It
0: is a roundtable akin to, I guess you'd say, King Arthur's roundtable, but there of you go. Filmmakers.
1: D- David, never short for a reference. No.
0: No, no, no. I'm, I'm here for terrible analogies and <laughs> sometimes quality basketball analysis.
1: I was so glad that we got to sit with these uh, three guys because not only do they love basketball, uh, which all of them do, um, and each have their own interesting sub-stories about Jordan and the Bulls and all that, yeah. but uh, if you are not familiar with their movies, uh, many of which David listed, my God... When The Last Dance ends on Sunday, there's plenty for you to seek out uh, on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu. Um, Please check out their work, Bill and Turner Ross and Steve James. They are, uh, and I say this with no hyperbole, they are truly some of the best living documentarians we have. That's my feeling. There you go. That's my feeling. Yeah. I believe it. Mm -hmm. It was so great to have them on. Should we call them up?
0: Let's proceed to do so.
1: Boom. Boom. Hey, hey. Steve James, how are you doing? How are you doing, Steve? Hey. Look at that. Um, David, that's a Trump magazine behind him, in case you can't tell. Nice. What cover, what year of the New Oh, look at that.
2: That's the New Yorker uh, from a couple of months ago. Nice. It's my favorite New Yorker cover ever. <laughs>
1: um, wow, look at all, I assume those are all your kids' drawings right there.
3: <laughs> yeah, so when we're making something, I've got the whole wall filled with uh, all our references and notes and boards. And then uh, when I'm just thinking, I like to put up D's artwork. So it's D artwork time.
1: I'm just in a closet, which feels really, really sad.
2: You you look like you're in a closet.
1: Yeah, well, you know.
0: (laughs)
2: Yeah, no time
0: did anybody think, you know what? Sam's not in the closet right now.
1: (laughs) I'm trying to leave this door slightly open so that any amount of sunlight can hit um okay i'm gonna oh there's bill okay i'm
2: just amazed that you know when you guys make a film you actually put shit up um that's really i just go out and shoot stuff i I I guess that's why your films are so pretty to look at thank you steve
1: (laughs) hey guys bill what's up let's just hop right into it on the idea of just shooting stuff steve i'm curious uh, for the three of you who've made many documentaries. Um, give me, both as a fan uh, of Jordan and the Bulls and uh, as a documentarian, your initial responses to this 10-week-long saga that we're in.
3: You mean talking about the series from a technical point of view is what you're
1: wanting? Y- yeah, I think both, as a fan and a, and from a technical point of view.
3: I just fucking love being immersed in that world again and just the variety and texture of images. You know, you're looking at TV feeds, you're looking at uh, home videos, you're looking at these really flashy, uh, well-produced interviews with, uh, you know, Jordan and the other players. But I just, I I like bouncing around and especially being able to go back in time. And uh, it just, you know, I've I've been sitting in the yard on Sunday nights projecting it on the house so that I can watch it with my dad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, because you know we got to keep our distance and uh, take care of the elderly. Although he he won't he won't call himself elderly, but um, we watch in the yard every Sunday night and project it, and it's just like a time portal. And uh, you know, the other night we were watching and just feeling so immersed in it and giddy like kids. And he just looked over at me and he, and he said. My God, T, if this just played all night long, you know, we could we, just sit here until the dawn and then we could have Bloody Marys and we could do it all over
2: again. <laughs>
1: uh, oh, that's so nice.
2: Yeah, well, it is. It is like crack, you know, yeah. Um, not that I've ever used crack, because I really haven't, but I can... No, 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 no.
1: Of course not.
2: <laughs> if, I, if I ever if I ever did, this would be what I'd want it to be. So, <laughs> you know, for an for addict, especially if you're a basketball fan and you haven't had a fix for a while, and especially if you're, I mean, even doubly so, triply so, if you're a Bulls fan or a fan of the NBA in general, just, you know. So I, I look at it critically, and I've got all kinds of opinions about it as a filmmaker, but... I, when I'm watching it, I just enjoy it and just go with it. And and then after it's over, I start thinking about what I would have done differently.
4: <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's so satisfying. I, I mean, I, I, I'm i a little kid again and I'm jumping around the room and I'm ter- I'm sure I'm terribly obnoxious to my girlfriend, but um, <laughs> it's like eating <laughs> fruity pebbles like by the bowl. You know, it's like, am I learning anything new? No. But am I revisiting a time in my life? That, you know, yes. You know, every Monday I wake up, I'm like, man, six more days.
1: (laughs) Let's go to um, two times, uh, the times in in everyone's life here, because episodes seven and eight really focus on the year Jordan left and uh, went to go play baseball. And in that period, um, two very different things are happening. One. Um, Steve, I, I believe Hoop Dreams premieres at Sundance uh, in January of 94. Um, and on the other end, I believe Bill and Turner were ball boys uh, at a Scottie Pippen game. Both are equally important, by the way. I'm curious, wh- where were you all at in 94 in that period where Jordan's gone?
4: Steve, I think your situation might be a
3: bit more significant. Than ours. <laughs> I
2: don't know, man. Ball boys For people of a certain age. Day.
3: We've been so excited to hear from you, though, Steve. I just I watch these images and I keep wondering where was Steve during this time? Because you'd spent a decade with basketball in Chicago up to that point, and so it's like, where is Steve? Did you go to the games? What What was that time like for you?
2: No, I didn't. I di- I wasn't. Well, I yes and no. I mean, I didn't get to see Jordan in a playoff game because I wasn't connected in this town. So I mean, my partner on Hoop Dreams, Peter Gilbert had season tickets going back to the old days with the Bulls. God love them, And he would occasionally, you know, let me have his seat at a game, but not a playoff game. You know, (laughs) the only playoff game I attended in the Bulls history was, was a pretty pivotal one, which was the 94 season when Jordan was gone and Scotty refused to go back in the game. Yeah. I um... was, I was at that game. And no, and you know, when they showed it the other night, it was great to revisit, but you know, they completely skipped over the brawl, which was just outright. Oh, can I say that on their podcast?
1: Yeah, you can. Why
4: okay. not? Sure, yeah, have, have you all gone back and watched that, Steve and I were actually uh, on a Zoom the other night just, just <laughs> wanting to discuss all things basketball. It's some, um, it took a weird turn into uh Angie Dickinson fandom at one point, but that's, that's <laughs> as not, it does. That's the does. <laughs> the brawl in that game is unbelievable. That is a different kind of basketball that's being played
2: yeah <laughs> it was I, and i remember when that brawl happened at the arena and i remember thinking wow this is epic now i mean nick's bulls is epic anyway but but then when scotty didn't come back in the game it was just like unreal and then Ku coach saved his career basically yeah i wasn't really going to a lot of games but i but i was you know, in it, I think one of the, my fondest memories related to Hoop Dreams and Michael Jordan is is that when Jordan came back, maybe I bought it, I don't know, but the, the cover of Newsweek had Jordan and it said Hoop Dreams. Whoa.
1: That was, my, Whoa. I was like, okay, I'm done,
2: I'm done. Wow, you
1: could have called the quits after that. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, some people think I did call quits. I, I run into people all the time who say, I love your work. Uh, have you done anything since Hoop
1: Dreams? <laughs> Unfair. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll have to properly plug all of your uh, like nine films since then <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. at the end. <laughs> um, please. Bill and Turner, I want to hear the ball boy story.
4: Yeah. So, T, do you remember the phone call coming in? I mean, I, because I don't remember the start, but I remember, I remember the getting there and the showing up and whatnot. But the start of the story is my dad was in the military with this guy uh, who, after the military, went on to great success in Chicago. And he was like the vice president of sales for Ameritech Mobile, which I don't know if that's a company anymore, but at the time they were on the forefront of cellular technology, I think. And they were also the second leading sponsor of the Bulls behind, I think, Gatorade. So, you know, me and T, small town little dudes at the time uh, have never, you know, been anywhere near a celebrity uh, ever. And this dude calls my dad up and he's like, hey, get in the car, there's this event tonight where I'm presenting Scottie Pippen a huge check at center court and I'll get you great seats and just, you know, get in the van. And so it's a six hour drive.
3: At this, at this time, uh, you know, we, you know, we're kids. It's, it's not, we weren't excited about making movies. Bill went to the YMCA. We lived next to the YMCA and he would wake up at 6am every morning and go practice because he was just convinced he was going to be, uh, you know, he, he was NBA bound. We saw hoop dreams. It just was like a mind blowing experience. Jordan is it, it, you know, we, we've grown up on Jordan and, um, and so just the idea that we could get in the van and drive to the last game in that great stadium and be around some of those players and just be close was wild. How old yeah. are you
4: guys? Uh, we would have been th- 11 and 13. So like prime time for this. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, so the event is, it's the last event in Chicago Stadium before they tear it down and build the United Center. Um, and Scotty Pippen's going to put on a charity event invite all his buddies, all-star buddies and just, you know, have this game for charity. And, but leading up to this like on sports center, I'm following it very closely, not knowing that I'm going to this event. But the rumor is, now Jordan's playing baseball at the time, but but the rumor is Jordan might show up, maybe just watch or he could play. So I'm following this, you know, Slam magazine is covering it. It's on I guess ESPN is the only show in town at that point, but I'm following this and then we get this call no call has set me in a spiral like this. You know, getting a call that your film your film is in a major film festival, amazing, <laughs> incredible. But this, this was like otherworldly. So uh, someone
1: calling you saying, we have the funding for your movie. Nope, nope does not rival this.
4: No, not even close. What if it was Michael Jordan calling you to tell you he was funding your movie? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. All right. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> but this was, anyway. So, but at this point, we don't know that we're going to be on the court. We just know that we're going to a game, which is fucking incredible already. T, jump in here at any point, <laughs> if you remember. We get in my dad's shitty minivan and we drive as fast as we can so we can get to the game. So we get there and we, you know, meet his buddy and he's like, uh, all right, here's where we're going to be sitting. And it's like, it's not court side, but it's like four rows back and we're, you know, losing our shit. But he looks at me and T he's like, well, you guys should be ball boys. And then it's like, then it's not even real. It's a dream. And like, you know, feet not touching the ground type thing. So, you know, Gary Payton is there uh, about to be rookie Jason Kidd who I've been following since he was at Cal. Like my favorite player of all time is there. Um, you know, Horace Grant's there. It, like any all-star at that point is there. Um, Jesse Jackson is there. I have a picture of Turner and Jesse Jackson.
1: Yeah, I saw that. <laughs>
4: you know, So there's a lot of celebrities and whatnot. And so anyway. Of Jesse was there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you want to throw any details into this before? I, I, oh, I, I, was, I was just letting you go because you're so excited.
1: <laughs> and, and that's really what a good brother does. He just lets the other brother go and keep talking.
3: Yeah. But listen when you know we're kids in the prime of all of this stuff and we're the guys who get to go on the court and it was like going on the field as an athlete or like just one of these whatever your field is you know that big moment where you're just you're not on the ground anymore and there's only what's in front of you we're out there rebounding and John Starks wants me to come wipe up his sweat and uh I get so in the motion of just rebounding pass, rebounding pass, And all of a sudden I lose what's going on and three balls just hit me straight on the head. And I remember Anthony Hardaway just looks at me and he says, "Oh shit, kid, are you all right?" And I just uh, shook it off. I realized where I was and then I kept at it again, passing the ball, passing the ball. So he's he's at one
4: end of the court and I'm at the other and uh all of a sudden the loudest thing still to this day I've ever heard is the whole crowd just loses their shit. And, you know, so I'm rebounding for everybody. It's all, it's, a, it's like this This loudness is getting closer and closer to me. All of a sudden I'm getting knocked over by photographers. I turn around to like see what's happening. And Jordan is right next to me. And he he's, he's sort, he's sort of like, you know, pushes me. He's like, he's like ball. And I fucking, you know, two hands, uh, thumbs all the way out. Best bounce pass of all time. He shoots it, he makes it. Asked for the ball again. And this goes on and on. And um, Jordan was back.
0: So. <laughs> so would you say, aside from today, that was your closest Touched with greatness? <laughs>
4: uh, yes, aside from right now, that was as, as, as
3: close. Well, now he got real excited the first time we met Steve, to be fair. Well, Touche. Well,
4: that's true, <laughs> that's true, that's true.
0: Now, what really, there's a somewhat large part of the story that you left out, and it also appears on your Instagram uh, page. Uh, your lovely mother, Patty, yeah. decided to take a picture with what many consider, i am this is not my uh, opinion, but many consider to be the villain of the of this documentary and Chicago Bulls with yeah. Jerry Krause, did this create a rift within the <laughs> Ross family structure through the years?
4: Yeah, I don't remember that being a thing. I, I, you know, look, they, my mom and dad were both school teachers, so it was just a joy to be in the room. Uh, you know, no matter what was going on, I, you know, it was cool that mom was getting a picture taken with him. But yeah, later on, yeah, we should have used that against her. Like, mom, you broke up the bowls. Like, what the fuck?
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's what mothers need. They need more things against them.
4: <laughs> no, but she's been sending us pictures throughout this whole thing. She's getting so pumped every Sunday night and just going through scrapbooks and sending us stuff.
1: I, I want to pivot a little bit to the nuts and bolts of the documentary because I've been watching it and I've I've wondered for the three of you throughout all this, what have you made of the iPad tactic? of eliciting a response uh, from Jordan.
2: Steve, what do you think about that? Well, I, I like it. I mean, I in some ways it's maybe my favorite, one of my favorite things about the doc, and part of the reason is because it's a clever idea. Also because it's some of the most genuinely actual thing happening now, you know, like a verite moment. You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. he's responding in the present. It's not him crafting his answer and Jordan controlling everything, which is what he does. It's a, it's a much more unguarded uh, moment. And this film it not about that. I mean, it is in the Verite footage, but it's not about that in the film that's being made. And so I love that aspect of it. The thing, though, that I wish they were doing with it, I wish they were doing it more, and I wish, even though I know this is a pipe dream, I wish they did it when people said something really hard about Michael. That's not just him getting to dump on Isaiah Thomas or, you know, like Wesley Morris said, drop a house on Isaiah. <laughs> like when people, but there's not enough of that in the series. I mean, this gets to a larger point, but if there was stuff that was more critical of Michael, say around his relationship to Chicago, which he really didn't have one, uh, or his relationship to black people in Chicago, which he didn't really have, or to black people in general, you know, as of this icon, I, I want to see somebody say something really tough and I want to see his reaction to that on the iPad, right. but you're not going to see that. That ain't going to happen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of um, bashing of Gary Payton, which thank God, Gary Payton really needed that. He needed to be taken down. Wait, peg.
4: you're anti the glove?
1: <laughs> no, I love Gary Payton. Preposterous!
0: Okay. It's all glove love on this side of things.
1: <laughs> I agree with Steve, like it's kind of low hanging fruit. to bash on Clyde Drexler who he just demolished and Gary Payton who his whole thing of if I guarded him the whole series is like a joke it's a comedy act it it wouldn't have mattered if he guarded him the whole series
4: yeah there's some weird tangents
1: but I love it I love that they kept that in because uh, they were pointing it out um I think I think it was Bill Simmons he was saying like all of these people keep talking about how they almost beat Jordan Right. And it's it's really lovely to to see how everyone's unified by their if one thing just if the ball bounced a different way.
4: Right. But like five minutes on B.J. Armstrong, like that was not (laughs) going to happen. Right. Like, let's use that time to sort of like poke some holes in the myth making instead. I don't know.
1: No, I think the myth making is a part of it. So, Steve, I'm curious because we were emailing about it. What was the film you wanted to make uh, if you were to make this?
2: I, wanted, I want to see Jordan get out of his chair <laughs> and, and move around. And I want to see him in his life now. I want it to expand the lens to be more about race and the NBA and Chicago. You know, like you don't feel the city of Chicago at all in this thing. I mean, it's like he could be playing in Charlotte, you know. <laughs> I want it to be more challenging of him. Even though I understand and I feel for the filmmaker, because you know what, it's Michael Jordan. And if you tried to challenge him, and maybe he did, you know, you'd be off the project or it wouldn't be happening. Like at the end of episode eight, we've had one of the more vivid examples of Jordan focused on winning and he's a tough teammate and he's unrelenting and all that two of the most revealing moments in the whole series are in that episode. One is where Jordan says something like, I'm paraphrasing. He says something like, well, if you don't understand this about me, it's because you've never won anything. Right. Mm -hmm. You know? And I thought that was great because I was like, yeah, that's, that's kind of how he looks at it. But then at the end of the episode, that's my dog barking to go out at the end of the episode, he says, he's tearing up as he's thinking about this. And then he says, time for a break. And it's like, that is not the time for a break, (laughs) Yeah, you know what I mean? It's like, because what I ultimately want from this, it's like this this film ultimately, you know, it's a celebration of of Jordan's flaws, but it's the flaws that were in the service of him being the greatest player ever and a winner. Mm -hmm. It's not about like what cost he's paid for that. And he's paid a cost. And you see it in his emotion at the end of the episode, but we'll never see it because the film is in there with him celebrating the fact that when it's all said and done, dude, he is a winner.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I asked Jason Hare uh, why, for instance, Juanita wasn't in it. And I do wonder if that was a, to what you're saying, I don't want to speculate. I don't know what, what ultimately went into their divorce, but you know, why she didn't appear in it. And he basically said, well, we wanted to keep it to basketball and what have you. And that, I think is what you're speaking to. Is that, now you had pitched this project or something similar to ESPN before, Steve?
2: I can't really talk, I shouldn't talk about it, but there was a point in time where I saw a version of this film like about 10 years ago when it was just a film.
1: It was being passed around.
2: You know, I, I saw, they had actually put together like a two hour film and it featured the it featured the footage and it featured interviews with Jordan and his teammates back recorded back then. Those interviews mm-hmm. are not in any of the doc mm-hmm. now. So it was attempting to kind of do what this is doing, but do it in a standalone feature. And and it was narrated by John Cusack, which was a really interesting decision.
1: Wow. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, he, he seems increasingly more unhinged. Um, that, I don't know why. <laughs> I, I can't imagine. He is a Chicago person, so that's positive.
2: Yeah, I think that go. was the thinking is like, hey, and he's a basketball fan and he, show, he shows up in the series. He showed up courtside or something and and then the version i saw he showed up and that was sort of the springboard to have him suddenly be the narrator of the film or something
1: that that was like kid rock doing the bad boys piston one (laughs) Um, you know it's funny you say that about the end of the episode where he says let's take a break because many people have credited that episode with like wow look how vulnerable it got but i i felt That was essentially the equivalent of getting to the end of your therapy session and then saying we need a break and then never coming back to therapy. (laughs) Yeah. It was like, yeah, yeah, we're done. Oh, we're done forever. Yeah. Okay.
2: That's where he's beginning to get vulnerable. That's not the end of the episode. Now maybe it's a, you know, I don't think so, but maybe it's a cliffhanger like they play it. And when we come back, he'll come back and sit down in the chair and we'll really hear something. But I, You know, I'll be surprised.
1: How have the three of you navigated, and I've talked to each of you about this um, on a podcast and not on a podcast, but I'm curious, how have you three navigated that moment when someone, a subject of yours, is uncomfortable, that doesn't want to go any further, that wants a break?
3: We don't ever do interviews. So I, I think ultimately that what Steve is talking about is the thing that we're always trying to find and if, if we get to a place of discomfort, it's usually an awareness of the camera rather than a probing. We usually try to find scenarios that we can inhabit so that we can ultimately arrive at a safe and comfortable space where people will sort of divulge those um, those personal expressions or, or or those moments. Bill, what would you say to that?
4: I'd say it's more in the edit where I start to get a little queasy about you know is is this appropriate to be in this person's space at this moment there's 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 only been a couple times where we've been shooting where like i'll, I'll step away i don't know I, turner and i have different barometers for that but uh
1: about when to step away and when not to
3: yeah but also there's a rapport there you know if somebody wants to tell me to fuck off you know i'll fuck off but i've already built that rapport so i'm going to stay with it as long as it goes and then editorially it's our responsibility because of that trust you know, as Bill's saying, to look at it and say, well, in the moment, we were all willing to go through with this, but post facto, does this give credit to to what we were
2: after and and take care of the people who took care of us? Right. I think that's a great point, that there's two stages to that question. There's in the moment and then in the editing. And what you choose to put in the film, ultimately, is what matters for you know the audience, and for how, and the legacy of the film, right? Because only you guys had the experience of of the moment. So, but I, you know, the times I've had that happen, I have found. I mean, sometimes to me, it's a feel situation. I sometimes I feel a need to press on a little bit because I feel like the discomfort is it's necessary to work through it in some way, right? But there are a lot of times where I'll back away at that point, and and what I've found over the years is is that people. When, when your subjects have some agency in this process and feel like they can say, I don't want to do that, or would you stop and you honor that, um, then that helps build the relationship to the point where they are then more willing to share. Because they don't feel like anything they say is suddenly like, ah, got it. Right. They feel like they can trust you. And they feel like you you actually have some interest in them beyond just being film subjects. That this is an actual relationship, and so I find over the years that that that's the key. And and I have left stuff out of films. I mean, I can talk about it now because it ended up on the DVD commentary from Arthur and William for Hoop Dreams. But there was one point where Arthur's mom divorced his dad while while we were filming, and she in fact got help from a lawyer that we helped her find to do it. Because mm-hmm. she reached out to us and she said, I, I'm going to divorce Bo, and yeah. I don't know anybody and I just need to do this. And so Peter Gilbert had a friend of his who was a lawyer who helped her out with that. And then they got remarried. This all happened during Hoop Dreams. <laughs> <laughs> then she took him back, you know, because he cleaned up his act and she loved him and she took him back. She called me the morning after they had remarried, all excited. And she said, Bo and I got married again. And I was like, wait, what? You didn't come? You know. (laughs) You know, I was like, what? You know. So we ran over there and we got a great scene anyway. She had just married up on the wall um, that they had gotten. She was totally over the moon. Like it was as if they'd gotten married for the first time. They were so Mm -hmm. giddy and excited and happy. And she said, and and we shot some video of it. And I go, oh, good. And she gave me the video. And I looked at the video. And the video is amazing because Arthur is there. And he is so unhappy that this is happening. And you see it. I mean, you see how unhappy he is that his mom is getting married to Bo again. And so I eventually cut a scene with all that, right? Like showing up you know, we tend to surprise people in the movie just like we got surprised. So we show up, suddenly she's, I figure you find out that they were divorced and she got married, blah, blah, you know, you see the video from the wedding. And when we showed that to the AGs back when we showed them the film before it was ever done, the only thing they said to us that they wish was not in the movie was that. And we took it out. We took it out because (laughs) they had given us, you know, everything and so much. It's like, she, you know, Sheila said, like, I'm just embarrassed that this happened to us. And I just, does this have to be in this movie? And we said, no, it doesn't have to be in this movie. So we took it out. Right. And that was the smartest thing we did around editorial things, because there was plenty in that movie that they looked at. I mean, when Bo buys drugs on the playground, I thought I, I had my speech already for when he watched that about how I was going to convince him that this needed to be in the movie. they didn't have editorial control, but just, you know, convince him that it was the right thing, you know? And it it played and then he stuck I know I'm getting off the topic here, but he we watched it. It was funny watching the film with the Aegis because every time William's story came on, it was like a commercial break. They would just talk, <laughs> you know, what they'd seen. And then when and then when William's story would end and come back to then they'd go, shh, shh, shh you know. Which was pretty hilarious. It was great to be in the room. We were in the room with them when they did it, so it was great to be there. But anyway, they get to the playground scene, and Bo says, "Stop the tape." He says, "I need to see that again." I'm like, "I'm getting my speech ready," you know. So he he watches it, and he goes, "I want to watch it one more time." I'm like, "Oh shit!" You know, this is gonna because this has got to be in the movie. Shit, you know. And he goes, "Man, I don't remember any of that." He wanted to watch it three times see if he could recall it. Wow. And I said, are you are you cool with it? And he said, yeah, I'm cool with it, because that's who I was. And I'm in a much better place now. So I'm fine with it. And I was just like, <laughs> "Incredible!" I, I mean, this gets back a little bit. I'm always struck. And I think you guys are, too. And then I'm going to shut up because I've been talking too long. But I'm always struck by how courageous the subjects in my films and, and other in and other people's films I see, too. But I'm just speak for my own how courageous they are about letting it all hang out as much as they do. I mean, every film is honest to a point, and some films are more honest than others. And I'm always struck about the degree to which how candid the movies, the docs are with people about how willing they are to let that be, let those hard things be in there. To me, it's not about like, oh, I want to be famous. It's not about that at all. It's about This is my life and this is what happened. I mean, I had Williams say that. William's reaction after he first saw Hoop Dreams was, and he watched it without us, his family watched it without us, his reaction was, he goes, it shows how I went from being a great ball player to an average ball player. And I was like, no, I don't agree with that. (laughs) You know, he goes, yeah, well, he goes, but but hey, it's what happened. It's what people need to see.
0: In your experiences, do you think it's even possible – for a good documentary to be made if the subject at hand, much like Michael Jordan, has the editorial control, so to speak, or the means of production. And, you know, I'm sure you guys have heard about the Ken Burns uh, criticism of The
2: Last Dance, um, essentially. I love that he criticized it before he even watched it, though. That's what I love
1: about it. (laughs) By the way, that was the first time Ken Burns mirrored like an online Twitter troll. (laughs) Just destroying something before you've even consumed a bit of it.
0: But to be fair, while he trolled, he did that slow pan over the picture. So, nice. just uh, yeah.
4: The only time we've had that situation was um, with David Byrne, and we wouldn't have done it if he had demanded like that he get you know final cut. When we met with him, we said, "Well, how much control do you have?" And he said, "No, no, no. This is your movie. I like your work." I want you to make your own movie. So, if he hadn't
3: have said that, I, we wouldn't have done it.
1: Mm-hmm. It
3: would have been very difficult. Yeah, because yeah. I you know, not not only do you have to be vulnerable to it, but in in the end you you're trusting someone to sort of canonize what that moment was. Um and if you have control over that and control over your self-image, that's a bizarre paradigm, which which makes the Jordan thing really interesting to me because he's choosing to allow himself to be portrayed, you know, kind of as an asshole. He's a destroyer. The guy, you know, and and, and he's allowing people to say that about him. Was Jordan an asshole? Yes. Did he want to win? Absolutely. Am I glad that we did? You better believe it. And, but is God, God part of- bless Will Purdue? Yeah. <laughs> um,
4: yeah. You never thought you'd you you like, be saying that, did you? No, never. <laughs> or or how fucking cool Bill Wennington is? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, wow. Um. um But yeah, I mean, I feel for the. I guess I feel for the director because there have to be so many cooks in that kitchen. I, that must have been maddening, uh, and I'm sure he can't talk about it. But I, I can't imagine taking on a project like that with all the input that must be in that room.
0: I mean, he said in statements, he said in interviews and whatnot that, you know, he asked Michael, for instance, Sam Smith, who they weren't sure if that was going to be too controversial Um, right. or if he was going to get the blessing. And so he says, uh, so Jason says, Michael's like, interview whoever you damn well plays. Hmm.
2: So, knowing that he has control in the end though. Knowing that he has of control. <laughs> like yeah, anybody who's a basketball fan knows that Michael Jordan was a killer. I mean, he can't, you can't win six rings. You can't be a goat. You can't, you know, that's who you are. So that aspect of him, I think, and it, and it is to his credit, he's willing to put it out there, but we all knew it anyway. And it's part of his lore now. That's easier. I think it's tougher. Like, I'll tell you, there's a moment, <laughs> there's a moment in the, I guess it was a where after the Bulls without him had lost to the Knicks, and you see Jordan in his baseball uniform talking about it, I don't think I've ever seen him look so happy. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, like the kind of question I want to ask Jordan in the present is, and to humanize him more, if I could get, is to say, dude, there must have been some part of you when they won 55 games this season, you left, and they, almost got back to the Eastern Conference Finals. And a lot of people thought they should have gotten back to the finals. They got robbed. There must have been some part of you while you were out there playing baseball going, what the fuck? Like, that's my legacy. Yeah. <laughs> They're talking about, you know, because Scottie Pippen was having an MVP year. So to go back to your question, it's like, I, I don't want to make films about people that I don't have affection for.
1: Right. Same.
2: I just, I don't like, I'm not the guy to do the, the the trump expose or well there's no expose it's like every day in the news yeah. alex gibney does these films where he you know exposes corruption and all this stuff and it's like and and very unflattering portraits of people that deserve to be unflatteringly portrayed i think but i i'm not someone that could ever do that film i've got to have some affection for someone to want to spend all that time with them and make a film about them but at the same time i think it is like when I did the Ebert film, it's like I was lucky because Roger was so determined to not have control. He he was very explicit about that. You know, I didn't set out to make a film that just trashed Roger Ebert because I admired him. I I tried to make something that showed his flaws and showed those qualities. But but and I think the same thing could be true with Jordan. I, I in fact I think the hardest thing about this is that it could be deeper and more honest and still have us come away thinking he's an extraordinary human being. Right. Did an extraordinary thing because I think all of that's there. I think he's tortured by that monster engine in him all these years. And I, I, I'm, I'm ready to feel more for him, but I can't feel more for him unless it tells me more.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you think audiences are more, uh, I guess open to the notion because because I mean considering that we have so many or you know in the golden age of documentaries as it were, do you think audiences are more open to the idea of like the flawed main you know subject so to speak, so they would be more open to something like that?
4: Definitely, I mean I I think watching the Steve Zebert film, it humanized him in a way like carrying on in bars all night <laughs> like that that made that made me like uh, it humanized him and it made him a very lovable character. Um, and so, yes, I, I think the, the reason, you know, Jordan is getting in his own way, obviously. So this film can't be great. It's, it's excellent. It's exciting and satisfying, but like his control, his, like, uh, there's some sort of psychosis there that like won't allow this to like go any deeper than it, it, than it is. So.
1: Yeah. And, and I just don't know, this is a theory I have when it came to, your film with David Byrne. I'm just thinking about David Byrne. David Byrne strikes me as someone who um, loves art. And I mean that in a very like basic, simplistic sense. <laughs> so his willingness to say, hey, I've seen a couple of your movies. Do the thing. I'm an artist. You're an artist. Go do the thing. I almost think you need the subject to really love film. I love storytelling in some way. maybe it's not saying someone has to be like well-versed in foreign cinema, but they have to understand the potential of a great movie. (laughs) I was just
2: making a joke. I was saying, God, I hope you don't have to be well-versed in foreign cinema. (laughs) (laughs) But to, to be fair though, to your point, we weren't
3: making a film about David.
1: Of course. I know that.
3: That was a big thing for him was, um, which we really appreciated and really attracted us to that project. He said, "But it's not about me," and so that allowed us. And that's what we're—that's what we're good at—is all right. Well, let's go explore what it is about, rather than saying, "Here's what it's about in advance," and let's go seek that out. And I love—I love Steve's point. You know, it's like if you are excited about. Batman, you want to Wayne, but you don't want to just interview Bruce Wayne. You want to see what the fuck he's up to when nobody's looking. And yeah. to have those knowns about Jordan, yeah, I mean he's hyper competitive, and it is exciting to see. And it is exciting to see his reactions on the tablet when he sees what his friends are saying, you know, or 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 his enemies. But um, yeah, there, I mean he still is in that tower, and we and what is he doing in there? You know, just like what is he doing?
1: It just seems like it's not customary for people of power to want to be vulnerable. I mean, I'm I'm just thinking about like the, the film I pitched, which all three of you held with uh, for people listening. We were going to maybe make this documentary on better O'Rourke. Steve um, was kind enough to even listen to the idea. <laughs> uh, B- Bill and Turner were uh, going to help make this thing.
2: Oh, so I did as much as they did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. This, this is this is That's like right. when your film premiered at Sundance in 94 and they were ball boys. It's equal. It's equal <laughs> playing field. Ultimately, if if anyone did watch the Better or Work documentary that came out, what I learned from that and what I've learned from a lot of the documentaries that are coming out now, especially on Netflix, is that most people are comfortable being vulnerable to a point. Mm-hmm. There is a point and there is a fine line. And it's a, it's a line that's hard to cross. And most people don't seem uh, willing to cross it.
2: I think that's certainly true of people who are celebrities and, or, or well-versed, like you said, in media, you know, and, and it's changing because people are becoming more and more savvy about all this stuff, which I think is a good thing, actually. Um, it's changing. But, you know, like if you look at Jordan, it, it's interesting that Jordan decided to go forward finally after over 20 years with this, the day after LeBron brought Cleveland back from a 3-1 deficit to beat the Golden State Warriors, right? <laughs> and apparently LeBron was muttering things like he's maybe in the GOAT conversation now, okay? So for Jordan, this is this is the perfect time for him to reintroduce the world to just how amazing he was and part of that is his ruthless winning you know that's that's part of the, the lore that's part of who he is. So this is you know it's funny I heard Michael Wilborn on a something radio show saying that the the, the host I think it was Michelle Williams on NPR weekend is, she she goes, you know there's talk that reason Jordan's doing this was because he's seeing LeBron in his in in the rearview mirror. Yeah. On the conversation. And Wilborn says, oh, no, 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 no. That's couldn't be more wrong. You've never heard Michael Jordan say, I'm the greatest ever. And I'm sure he hasn't because he would never do that. That's not, that would be like saying uncle, you know, it's like, but having this out there now has certainly reignited that, that thing of like, can anybody do what Jordan did? I mean, fricking Jordan you know, his last game in Atlanta, they had that in the series, his last regular season game in Atlanta is a record for the number of people that went to see a basketball game. And that's still true. LeBron James is not going to play on his last year in basketball, a game in some city that has nothing to do with him and have 65,000 people show up to see him play. That's just not going to
1: happen. Right. Right.
2: Okay, David, are you you're,
4: are you you you're making these faces over here? Are you uh, are you a LeBron team LeBron here?
0: Diehard Cleveland Cavaliers fan, and I and and granted, I I Cavaliers fan. I I love me some LeBron, so I'm not like a Lakers fan. I I'm, I never understand why you know the whole. I just like the player, but I do love LeBron. I don't know. I, I would. I might push back on that Steve and say that LeBron might actually garner, you know, if it was set up in the same way where it was this is the last dance so to speak, um that that he might garner that much attention going away, but you know, we can agree to disagree.
2: Maybe, but there's there's just been nothing like Jordan and it's not just about what he did on the court, right? And and I just think it's it's even unfair to LeBron for me to say to like, I'm not throwing that up as a, to say anything about whether he deserves to be considered the greatest of all time, oh, yeah. because I do think he's in the conversation, not in the same way Jordan did it. You know, the game's changed. I think right. LeBron's truly, you know, he's right there. So, sure. but it's really more about like, there, you know, there could only be one Charlie Chaplin. Right. right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, you know, it's sort of like there can really only be somebody like that that occupies the place in the culture. To that,
0: I will say, let's circle back around to this conversation after Space Jam 2. Oh, <laughs> OK, that the book has not been written completely. All right. I got a
3: seven year old daughter now who didn't know who Michael Jordan was. And now she does. And her conversations with me are well, why, why was he, you know, he was a really good basketball player, but what was the deal? I said, he was the most famous person in the world yeah. for a period of time. And and she said, well, who's the most famous person in the world now? And it's not LeBron James, it's Donald Trump, probably, you know, but that, for that moment in time, this guy, you know, Michael Jordan was the most recognizable figure in the world. That was yeah. insane.
1: God, we almost got to the end of this without mentioning Donald well, Trump. We mentioned him earlier. Oh, well, well, oh, with your magazine, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and the recurring show. Um, <laughs> that is really sad that we went from Jordan to Trump. I'm just, I'm just soaking that in a little bit.
0: Can I actually follow up with something? You know, you had mentioned something earlier, Steve, and and I think this kind of goes to it, and, and maybe you had alluded to it as, as well. In terms of what Michael Jordan became, in terms of Transcendent, so to speak, and I guess his relation to Chicago or his absence of. Because I also do. I remember watching Hoop Dreams back in '94, and there was an absence of the Bulls and Jordan in, in seemingly in that in in the documentary. Can you speak to that a little bit more? I mean, is it well? Jack, I,
2: yeah, Jordan's at the beginning because we filmed the kids watching the '88 All Star Game. Right. Uh, and it was in Chicago at the stadium and the stadium just as the shout out cuz you guys like that was the all-time greatest arena the oh, stadium incredible. the seats suck but it was just you know the best so we framed the beginning of the movie around the all-star game and you see Jordan dunking and all that but it also features Isaiah back when we were making Hoop Dreams i mean Jordan was emerging as this most phenomenal player but at that time i think Isaiah still owned Chicago because mm-hmm. the, because the bad boys Pistons were coming into their, we started shooting hoop dreams in 87. So the, you know, that was prime time for the bad boys. Isaiah is probably, and there's been a lot of great players that have come out of Chicago, but Isaiah is arguably the greatest basketball player from Chicago, you know, and he was six feet tall. And somebody said that if he was six, six, he would have been Jordan. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing though. See, this is the kind of thing, you know, I I want to reiterate how much I enjoy in the series, and it is a (laughs) major, major accomplishment. It's hugely ambitious. It's beautifully put together, you know, all that. But, you know, when Isaiah didn't shake Jordan's hand going off the court, first of all, Lambier should have come in for real criticism on that. It was his freaking idea. But Jordan was taking over Isaiah's city, you know, and he had no roots here. And it's like, there's a lot you know, that's not easy when you're a killer like Isaiah was a killer, you know? And so you just, there's a part of me that wants it to just dig in to stuff a little more and not be quite so much the greatest hits that is what it is.
1: I'm curious because we're in this uh, unusual moment and this documentary coming out in the absence of basketball has I'd say like dominated the online sports discourse, and they made an announcement. ESPN did yesterday that they're bumping up three other sports documentaries <laughs> that were uh, that were not ready, that aren't ready, um, that will I guess gonna they're gonna have to be ready uh, by the time they air them. Uh, I'm interested for for the three of you thinking about the future of. Documentary filmmaking and how people consume it, you know, Netflix has touted how, how they've monetized a lot of their docs and docuseries and and they're more popular now than ever. And and oftentimes what comes out of Netflix, you know, like the Tiger King stuff, um, which I, I still have not seen. They, they do place an emphasis on documentaries, but it seems to be a different way of making them and consuming them. Um, so I'm interested what you three make of all of that.
3: Well, I mean, if people are consuming it, uh, they're going to stick with that paradigm. Uh,
1: Bill smiled right there, which I know means he has something that he wanted to say, but wasn't saying. Yeah. It.
4: Well, yeah, I just, they are, they're putting out a certain kind of film, which I enjoy, uh, but it it is not, not the, type the type of stuff we film. make. It's not the kind of stuff we make. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but it, it's very poppy and fun, and uh, it's easily digestible. And you know, right now, it's fun. But um, yeah, is it? And we'll see
3: what the new paradigm looks like down the road. I mean, we're still we're still in this thing right now. I, I will say that you know, here in a couple of days, Bill and I get to say that we you know we we figured out a way to get our film out during this time, and that's exciting. Oh, great. Um, but you know, it's, it's confronting a totally new paradigm where, yeah, you have content made for the internet. You've got theaters that are closed. And so what happens to, you know, shit like, like we make yeah, and, Putting um, a
4: film out this year was a great idea. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah.
3: So we're figuring that out. Stay
2: tuned. Oh. Yeah. I, you know, the last two things I've made were, were docu-series. And, um, one of them is this, uh, America to me, um, hardly anybody saw that. Um, And I made it with a great group of filmmakers. It it wasn't just my direction at all. There was a group of directors involved in this. And um, I'm really proud of it. Um, But nobody watched it because why? Well, it was on the wrong channel. And it was also not about murder, I guess. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I kept... We, I followed so many kids, I kept hoping one of them would get killed, but. Oh. That's always the hope. It's always the hope. You, you can, one can only hope oh. or, or commit a murder or something, you know. Yeah. yeah. But um, we got our pull quote.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I saw the joke going there and I was like, really? Is that? Oh, wow. He does. He's, he's really
2: going for it. Yeah. I love but, it. You know, and I have this new thing that that's the the coronavirus has played its havoc with just like everybody else's stuff. And uh, you know, we haven't we haven't sold it yet uh, in part because of that. But it also doesn't have murder in it. You know, I there are definitely exceptions. There are great docuseries coming out that are not necessarily so poppy, but how many people see them is always the, the the challenge, right? Yeah. You know, it's it's weird in a way, but it's like the staircase was so ahead of its time, right? It's one of my all-time favorite doc. Nobody has quite equaled that of the ones I've seen since, yeah. you know, and there's been some good ones, but it not only established the genre, it is the transcendent example of the genre, so... But I did want to say one other thing, you know, we talked about that, can you make film a, a good film with the subject editorial control, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the great sports documentaries that I know of made about someone without their cooperation is Barbara Koppel's Mike Tyson film. If you haven't seen that, you should check it out. She made it, it's so un, underappreciated in her, you know, massive body of work.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Noted. She made it without Tyson's approval. Tyson said, I, I got to have editorial control if you're going to interview me. He, she said no. And she made it anyway. And it is, it's what you want a doc like that to be because it is sympathetic to Tyson. You feel for this guy and she does not pull any punches when it comes to the things he's done yeah and mm-hmm. it's really uh, I think it's a remarkable film that's also very much archival driven. you know it's it's similar to this film.
0: makes me wonder to the three of you, is there a subject that is ripe and whether it be in the you know, the paradigm, as you said, similar to this or your own style or whatever, is there a subject that that is that you'd like to see? given the last hands treatment the i would like to see uh James. You know,
4: yeah exactly
0: <laughs> no i want to see the dallas cowboys like about that 90s dallas cowboys squad because there's a lot of a lot of stories that are implied about and what have you
1: and i was just wondering about you guys i got one too and and it's not sports related Yeah, it doesn't have to be sports related they've been trying to make this movie uh, some of you may know, but they, they've been trying to make this Lauren Hill documentary, and I still think whoever gets to do that—if um, she says yes to it—there is a '90s story of music in there. There is a woman who, you know, such a wonderfully talented person who came undone by all kinds of shit pre-internet. I don't know. I feel like that story has not been written, and and warrants—I don't know about ten episodes, but at least five or just a good two hour movie.
2: You're not greedy.
1: I'm not greedy. I'll take any Lauren Hill I can get. <laughs>
2: uh,
4: David, maybe you'll appreciate this with your affinity for Cleveland. But um Uh-oh. we, we t- late late one night, uh Turner and I, you know, we grew up with uh you know listening to Bone Thugs and we were like <laughs> so we went down a YouTube uh deal while we were drinking and uh we found <laughs> this footage of them in the studio uh that it was like shot, re- shot really well it was all unedited and it's just them in the studio like prime in their prime and uh it, it's like uh busy is just losing his shit he's totally fucked up and and we're just like what is this you know yeah. it only had like a couple of views and we're like we need to track down this footage and we
3: tried we want to make the definitive bone thugs in harmony.
4: Well, hold on. So we we come we're trying out for it. I know, yeah. but anyway, we come up with ideas all the time where we're like, we'd love to see that made, yeah. but we're not going to make we're not yeah. going to do it under a, a you know, a different name, but we'd le-
2: love to see the definitive bone stuff. I got a couple <laughs> um one sports one non and I, it, the non sports one was triggered by your Lauren Hill Forever and maybe, I don't know, maybe somebody made it and I just missed it, but forever, I, but I think it's miniseries, docu-series material, forever i wanted to see the Marvin Gaye story.
3: Ooh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Like really, really done. There was this incredible book written many years ago called Divided Soul, uh, a biography of him that I just thought was unbelievable. And you know, talk about a guy who was a musical genius and all, but was a tortured man and grew up in a tortured family mm-hmm. um, with a father. I mean, it's such a, I'm kind of like, have they made a scripted of this yet? I don't think they have, right?
0: No, no you know, I don't say no.
2: It's like the Marvin Gaye story, and it it deserves a miniseries, whether it's scripted or doc, it deserves a miniseries. It's, it's that rich. The other one, though, that I would personally like to do well, I'd like to do that one, too, if someone would give me money, but I don't know that that's going to happen. I'd love to do a story about the ABA. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Virginia going to see Squires games when the doc was our first two years in in pro basketball. And as much as I feel like I've been a very blessed basketball fan, because I've gotten to see Michael Jordan in Chicago, and I got to see the doc in my hometown. And the ABA is such a trip. And a lot of those guys are still around. So I'd mm-hmm. love to see the ABA treatment, like the last dance version of the ABA. That'd be incredible. I can't, I'd have to imagine that somebody would jump at that. Yeah.
0: And there's a great book, uh, speaking of Cleveland by Terry Pluto, called Loose Balls about the ABA. That is a really fun read. Highly recommend it.
1: We'll forward this podcast to uh, Netflix and Hulu and see what they think. Maybe we can get a it green light. Um, Last question before we all have to go. Final episodes coming this weekend. I think they're going to win against the Jazz. I don't know. (laughs) Spoiler alert. I don't know. I have have a crystal ball. Um, But what in watching this, I'm thinking about how, you know, Turner, you're watching it and projecting it and your father's there. And I've been calling my dad after every episode. And the conversation always ends up thinking about what Jordan means to us. At this point in our lives, so I'm wondering, what does he mean to the three of you at this point in your life?
3: Yeah, when I when I talk about it with my dad, you know, we both see an era where he was a marine and sports were a thing, and it was like, but we had someone we could look at it and and, and say, man, that guy really wants to be great, and I loved that, you know. And it was something like
4: when, we- when he when he says that the you know where we keep going back to the one moment of emotion. Um, but when he says, look, you can bitch all you want about how I went about it, but no one, you know, no one worked harder than I did. I really connected to that because Turner and I get on each other's nerves uh, and, you know, but there's, (laughs) but but there's, you can't bitch about the work ethic, the
3: common goal. We, we, you know, we, we want to get there. Yeah. And I'll always have that. I, I think that is intrinsic just from growing up with that and that time and, and sort of being close to it and thinking about it and um, wanting to aspire to something. And then also just, it is just sweet nostalgia to sit there and go back in time. Been trying to talk Bill for a month into coming, coming back and so we can all sit down and watch in the yard together, but uh, get there when we get there. Complicated times.
2: Yeah. <laughs> for me, I think um, Jordan just sort of he just, he represents this larger-than-life cultural phenomena. Before Jordan, maybe Muhammad Ali, definitely Muhammad Ali, was like the most famous guy on the planet, like Turner was saying. And when Jordan was Jordan, he was the most famous person on the planet. He changed the sport. He changed the culture. He changed the way we look at athletes. And for a Black man to do this, you know, Muhammad Ali did it while... A lot of us love what Muhammad Ali was and what he stood for. There were a lot of people that hated Muhammad Ali, right. Jordan was one of these guys that nobody hated except guys he played against and and with, apparently <laughs> <laughs> teammates. But he, you know, he really did transcend race in a way that I there are times when I wish he had used that. Toward civil rights for sure but he did manage to transcend the culture in a way that i don't know has anybody ever done before no and will anybody do it to that degree ever again i doubt it
1: wow. i kind of hope not I, <laughs> I, 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 so <laughs> selfishly not as a chicago fan steve that was wonderful bill and turner thank you all so much for doing this podcast thank uh, you. A real, a joy. A real joy
2: thanks a lot guys a blast thanks
1: And there it is. Thank you so much for listening to the Last Dance After Show. We want to give a special thanks this week to Steve James and Bill and Turner Ross. If you'd like to learn more about them, you can do so in our show notes, wherever you do your listening: Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. We'd also like to give a special thanks to our wonderful editors, Melissa Zhuang and Meg Chen Sun. Without them, this show would not be possible.
0: Absolutely. And uh, thank you so much, ladies. We'd also like to encourage you to please help out as we try to raise money for the good people over at Feeding America. Feeding America right now is working to get nourishing food from farmers, manufacturers, and retailers to people in desperate need. And of course, we are in desperate need right now. They are especially doing great work amid the COVID-19 crisis. So if you can, we'd greatly appreciate if you could make a donation to what they're doing. You can learn more about their cause at www.feedingamerica.org.
1: Boom, there it is. On Sunday, we're going to release a two-part episode, a two-part A-side even. Uh, the first half will be with former Bull, uh, the one and only Bill Cartwright. After that, uh, we're going to get on the phone as the final two episodes play out on ESPN. We're going to call up Morgan Murphy and Heidi Gardner, uh, two very funny women. Heidi's on SNL right now, and Morgan Murphy is a stand-up comedian, a a comedy writer. She's written all kinds of uh, really great stuff, including episodes of Two Pro Girls and Modern Family, and she wrote for a long time on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, both of them really funny, and both of them love basketball. So Mm -hmm. come back here, uh, what, Sunday night, Monday morning, it will be up.
0: It will be up, and uh, we also have to give a special shout out. My homie here, Sam, I don't think realized what I was quoting um, in his intro.
1: Uh -uh.
0: Uh, A happy 70th birthday. I mean, those words were apt for you, but of course they were quoted from the special song, Happy Birthday, by the man himself who's celebrating his 70th birthday today, Mr. Stevie Wonder. So Feliz cumpleaños to him everybody out there please stay safe wash your hands thoroughly and we will see you on the next episode
1: music of my mind is his best record that's it see ya old statement (laughs) peace